Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we have a really interesting podcast about gestational diabetes. And I have to admit, it's not something I knew a ton about. I've had students have it and they've asked me questions and I've always referred them out. So I thought, all right, it's time to dig a little deeper, educate myself, help educate others. So we have Lily Nichols. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist. She's certified in diabetes education and she's a researcher and author. And her website is realfoodforpregnancy.com. But before we get to that, I just wanted to say a quick thank you for all those that have taken a moment and have left a rating or review on iTunes. In fact, I was just peeking through and I was just thrilled to see how it's increased. And I want to read one that was just recently left, um, actually only a couple days ago. This is from Brendale. Brendale, I hope Brendale, I think it's pronounced. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's a five star and says, Love, love, love. I began listening to your podcast a little while ago. I'm 33 weeks and looking forward to my birth. I'm so happy with all the information I have learned. I feel empowered through knowledge. Thank you so much for all your work. Thank you for all those experts willing to put the content out. I listen to an episode or two every day. So I saw that and I'm just so thrilled and I wanted to share that because I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. So if the podcast has meant something to you, please take a moment, go on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating and review. It really helps others find us. And also just a reminder that we've opened up a donation button on our website, prenatalyogacenter.com. And we're asking for donations to help keep the podcast going. It's something I love to do. It gives me a chance to dive deeper into topics I can bring to you, but it takes some time and it takes some energy and I have to pay a lot of people to help me with this. I have a sound engineer and I have two assistants working on this, so it's quite a labor of love. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. All right, so let's get to it. Let's talk to Lily. Let's learn about gestational diabetes. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, Lily. I'm so excited to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I think this whole thing about gestational diabetes is so important. And I have to admit, all the years I've been working in the pre and postnatal community, I don't know much about this, even having gone through two pregnancies. So I'm super excited to speak with you and have all this juicy information kind of spilled out into the community. So, oh, all yeah. right. 
let's jump in. Let's go with first, just tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you get into such a strong focus of diabetes nutrition? Yeah. And, and diabetes nutrition during pregnancy, which is even more, uh, more niche. Yeah, absolutely. It was in a funny way. It was almost by accident. Um, my training is as a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified diabetes educator. And, uh, back when I was living in Los Angeles, an opportunity came up to work for the California diabetes and pregnancy program, which is known as sweet success. Um, it was a state funded program and we did outreach and training to other professionals. And we had a lot of clinicians on board that really advocated for more progressive screening measures and, um, stricter management. And we really were a, I think a starting point for a lot of the rest of the country taking on, um, you know, looking at different diagnostic standards and just nutritionally treating better. Uh, So it was really working with them that got my start and got my interest. And I think what made me most excited about it was that I've always felt like, you know, childhood nutrition is, is, and and children's health is really important to me. Um, Just observing in the nineties, like the massive spike in the obesity epidemic and, like type two diabetes being diagnosed among toddlers. It's just crazy that like this is happening mm-hmm. and why is it? And I remember learning how much a baby's development was affected by a mother's blood sugar levels and how this can predispose them for a higher risk of obesity and type two diabetes in childhood. We're talking like a six fold higher risk of type two diabetes by the time a, a baby turns 13. So a lot, a, a mm-hmm. much bigger, um, a a scary statistic, I guess I would say. And so it got me really passionate about, um, working with gestational diabetes, seeing that it was sort of like a, a two birds with one stone sort of situation. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also working clinically with clients with GD found it very interesting that the conventional nutrition guidelines that I had been using in practice, they just didn't work very well. We had a pretty significant proportion of patients, they call it fail diet therapy, where they um, need medication or insulin to manage their blood sugar levels. And that's about 40% of women will will fail diet therapy. And that just seemed way too high for me. I thought we could do more nutritionally. I thought maybe we could go lower carb. Maybe if we emphasize nutrient-dense foods that provide the nutrients that help with blood sugar management and insulin resistance, like maybe we could do something with that. And um, that's really what got me going in the field and eventually has led me to where I am today, where I've developed a nutrition approach for managing gestational diabetes that I outline in my book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, that is uh, significantly more nutrient-dense than conventional standards. I defend the safety of a lower-carb diet in managing gestational diabetes, and we just all around have better outcomes, healthier moms who gain the appropriate amount of weight, who don't have other pregnancy complications, who give birth to normal weight babies, who don't go hypoglycemic and don't have, just don't have issues. It's just healthier mamas and babies all around. How much, I'm kind of diverting from what we'd originally planned on, but how different is your, your plan and your approach than more the classic traditional uh, gestational diabetes diet? There is some overlap for sure. I don't Uh want to throw that approach entirely under the bus. Uh So for example, um, learning which foods contain carbohydrates and being careful about the quantities of which you consume at a meal and making sure you're 
Um, not consuming like a massive amount of carbs all at one meal and then like none at the next meal, like trying to even that out. That's definitely a similar in mm -hmm. my plan. The overall level of carbohydrates that I recommend in my plan is lower. And also I really emphasize that it's customizable to the woman. So in other words, the, the woman can eat to the meter, meaning if your blood sugar is high after eating a particular meal with a particular amount of carbohydrates, you have permission to try eating lower carb and see if it works. Whereas the conventional standard recommends that you don't go lower than 175 grams of carbohydrates per day. That's their lower limit. Um, which for a woman who has high blood sugar, that's kind of a high carbohydrate intake. So um, that's definitely different. The Another part that's really different is that I don't advocate low fat. I don't advocate low salt, and I don't advocate limiting your animal protein. Um, fats and proteins don't raise your blood sugar. And moreover, a lot of foods that are naturally rich in fats and proteins are some of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume during pregnancy. So that part definitely differs as well. I think it takes a lot of consumer education too. I remember sitting in the studio hearing someone talk about she won't eat too many fruits and vegetables because bananas are so high in carbs and sugar. Um, and I know that is one of the more sugary ones, but she's like, yeah, I have to cut back on my fruits and vegetables. Um, was that, is that true? Well, it all comes down to a, the carbohydrate amount that's in something and b a person's carbohydrate tolerance. I don't think so, she was even diabetic. I think this was just her approach. So I'm yeah, wondering if this is just misconsumer information. I think it's like half. Yeah. It is a bit of like half consume, half <laughs> correct information, I guess I would say, because I think people take the whole, you've got to limit your carbs to the extreme. Like first and foremost, the carbs that you want to limit are the ones that don't come packaged with other essential nutrients that your body needs. Mm -hmm. So refined carbohydrates and sugars, even across all different nutrient philosophies, almost everybody agrees that refined carbohydrates and sugars are pretty nutritionally devoid and don't add much value to your diet. So before I'd have anybody cut back on fruit, I would have them look at their refined grain intake and their sugar intake. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'd rather have you add less sugar to your coffee or not drink juice or soda or, you know, take out the white bread, then have them start restricting those. Yeah. But for somebody with blood sugar issues, certainly they do have to be cognizant of the amount of fruit they're eating. I think there's still a place for fruit in the diet, but they might need, need to be careful about the amount uh -huh. or the types of fruit they eat because they can all have different effects on your blood sugar. Yeah. So I was really just, as you start talking, I'm like, oh, I need to dig into this because it keep, was kept ringing in my head. All right. I'm gonna, <laughs> it totally makes sense. Right? I'm going to bring us back to the topic. So let's sit, let's talk about what is the difference between gestational diabetes and type one and type two diabetes. So gestational diabetes can be defined in a couple of ways, but essentially it's diabetes that is first diagnosed mm -hmm. or first recognized during pregnancy, which can mean two different things. Like it could have developed during pregnancy or a person may have had blood sugar issues beforehand, but it has just been caught during pregnancy. Oh. Um, and this, that's 
that's kind of a whole can of worms, but essentially like we've identified blood sugar is higher than is typically seen in pregnancy and thus we need to treat it during pregnancy. So we're going to call it gestational diabetes, but you don't necessarily know if it's something that was caused by being pregnant or if there was a blood sugar issue going on beforehand until your postpartum and do follow-up screening, which is kind of tricky. <laughs> but um, essentially gestational diabetes, another way to define it would be um, carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy, meaning a person isn't able to tolerate a large amount of carbohydrates without having high blood sugar. Regardless of if it was going on beforehand or is just going on during pregnancy, that is what's happening now. So we're going to manage it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, and gestational diabetes is often related to insulin resistance, which is your body's ability to respond to a hormone called insulin, which helps with your blood sugar management. Um, and during pregnancy, our bodies, especially in the second half of pregnancy, have a tendency to become more insulin resistant. So if you get insulin resistant to the point that your body's natural production of insulin is not enough to maintain normal blood sugar, then you have high blood sugar and thus gestational diabetes uh, develop. Now, GD, I'm going to call it GD because it's easier than saying gestational <laughs> diabetes a million times. Got it. GD and type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes have a lot of overlap because those are both issues of excessive insulin resistance. Um, and generally, insulin production is high in both of those cases. It's Your body's just not responding to your insulin well due to insulin resistance. So gestational diabetes is actually a risk factor for prediabetes or type 2 diabetes later in life. Um, it's like the early warning light coming on in your car. And if you have a blood sugar issue during pregnancy, there's a fairly high chance that you'll have continue to have blood sugar issues later in life, usually within the first like five to 10 years um, after the pregnancy. So it's, you know, elevated blood sugar or, you know, issues with blood sugar metabolism are often very slow, progressive things. Um, but what's kind of cool if we want to look at the silver lining of GD is that if you have this early warning sign, like a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, you actually have time to make some changes to your lifestyle to reduce that risk of type 2 diabetes later <laughs> yeah, in life. Yeah, I right? guess, so yeah, so you, cool. you know to look for um, it. Yeah, and then type 1 diabetes is different than both GD and type 2 in that it's a disease where your body doesn't produce insulin anymore. So it's something that, yeah, is, you know, lifestyle can help with your management, but it essentially always requires um, additional insulin, like as an insulin shot, as a medication um, to manage your blood sugar. Um, and it's often like an, an autoimmune condition where your body has destroyed or progressively destroys the cells in your pancreas that makes insulin. So it's it's different because it's not as um, it's not as lifestyle related. It's uh, in some ways a very mysterious disease that we don't always know how or why it develops. Um, but it's something that always requires insulin. Whereas type two diabetes and gestational diabetes, depending on the severity, um, can be managed more with lifestyle. Now, what about 
hypoglycemia where it's a drop in blood sugar. Is that related to gestational diabetes in any way? Because I know gestational is when the blood sugar is high and hypoglycemia is when the the blood sugar is low. Is there any relationship? Some, yeah, somewhat. Um, I say somewhat in that nutritionally what you do to help manage or prevent hypoglycemia from recurring is actually very similar to what you do. It's managing your, your, your food intake <laughs> yeah. and your sugar. Yeah. Cause I have a lot exactly. of students that will stop in the middle of class and go get a snack because they're saying my blood sugar is low, which of course, if that's the case and please, you know, help yourself. Um, but it's just, I see it a fair amount. Can I ask what stage of pregnancy these people are in? Um, not usually the first. So somewhere in the second or third. Oh, interesting. Okay. I ask that because, so blood sugar management shifts over the course of pregnancy. So like in early pregnancy, um, insulin resistance tends to go down, Uh um, and your body has not yet started producing extra insulin. And for some women, especially with like nausea and food aversions and other things going on, there's, there's more of a tendency to go hypoglycemic. Whereas in later pregnancy, when insulin resistance is on board, blood sugar is sometimes maintained a little more steadily. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, with hypoglycemia, often there's a, a spike in blood sugar followed by a rapid drop that Uh gives your body the signal. Oh my gosh, we're kind of in emergency mode, like got to fuel up again. So there is definitely a bit of, um, similarity with GD, Uh although your blood sugar isn't like consistently maintained, right. You know, at a higher rate. So the person's response to like a glucose tolerance test might be really exaggerated with hypoglycemia. Like they might be really, they might drop really low, um, after a glucose tolerance test still like, ideally you want to better manage your blood sugar. So you're not feeling so like shaky and awful and like emergency feed me now, but it's not necessarily that you have to worry about your blood sugar always being high. That yeah, makes sense. no, absolutely. And if, I mean, I I've gotten the hypoglycemia thing. I find I get really, well, my husband says I get really mean. Um, <laughs> Yeah. blood sugar drops. He's like, go eat something. But I, I've seen I it. Yeah. Totally relate. I've seen it in my students and I'm like, if you need to eat, please go for it. All right. Let yeah. me get back. I keep pulling us back off track. All right. Cause this is so interesting to me. So is there anything that puts someone more at risk for developing GD and are there any ways to prevent it? So the risk factors are in many ways, a lot of the same risk, risk factors for type two diabetes. Um, So if there's any family history of type 2 diabetes or prediabetes, or if your mother had gestational diabetes with you, Mm because that can affect the development of your pancreas, if you have uh, a a family history of um, having large babies, sometimes that's a signal that there may have been a history of GD, even if your mother wasn't officially diagnosed, because we're kind of in the era where like, women who are currently having babies, sometimes their moms were not screened in Mm -hmm. pregnancy um, because that wasn't the norm until like the 90s. Um, Also having, um, being overweight or obese prior to conception puts you at greater risk because that can affect your um, level of insulin resistance. Uh, Having PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome can put you at risk. 
And then being of an ethnicity, pretty much anything other than Caucasian, because any of those ethnicities are at higher risk for type 2 diabetes, the risk factor also carries over for gestational diabetes. Oh, and another one is being older, um, but not really that much older. So insulin resistance in general tends to go up as you age. Um, There's a statistically higher rate of gestational diabetes among women who are over the age of 25. 25? yeah, 25. <laughs> so it's not that big, scary 25. 35. Okay. Cause no, I, that's why I feel like not that much older, like unless you're having kids in your early twenties, um, or earlier. Yeah. It's like everybody is, has some level of risk factor. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I would say, um, the community I happen to teach, we rarely get anyone in their twenties. Most everyone's in their thirties, oh. late thirties. So yeah, 25 is okay. So it's kind of most people. <laughs> <laughs> At least in the in the people that I see, and who knows what the podcasts reach. Are there any symptoms that someone may have, Gigi, that they had no idea about? Oftentimes, there's not really symptoms. Oh, interesting. And yeah, unlike so, sometimes you hear stories of of somebody like, oh, I I knew I had diabetes because I was really thirsty yeah. and really hungry and peeing all the time. Um, you don't tend to see that with GD because the level of blood sugar that's like required to diagnose you as gestational diabetic isn't really that high. So like blood sugar tends to trend about 20% lower during pregnancy naturally, which means that having blood sugar like a non-pregnant person could be in like a gestational diabetic range, but you're not necessarily going to have symptoms of it. You pretty much don't know until you get your blood sugar checked. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, let's Unless talk about really that. Severe. Let's talk about the whole getting the blood sugar test. So let's talk a little bit about how it's diagnosed, but then I also want to get your feedback and your thoughts on someone that may not want to get tested. Cause I've had that. I've had some students very upset about it. Be like, I don't want to drink that stuff. Why do I need to do this? Is this just protocol? And I actually am really honest. I'm like, this is not my area of expertise. Normally I'm all about, you know, like, let's ask questions. Let's find out why we need to do something, but this is beyond my scope. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So it's controversial. I'll start with that. It's always going to be controversial. And I also totally uh, relate to the women who don't want to be tested because the typical way that it's tested oh, is it's horrible. With, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of torturous. So it's a, a glucose tolerance test or, or two, depending on how the practice you're at does it, uh, where you drink a specified amount of a sugary drink and they measure your blood sugar 
sometimes they measure it before as well as after, or sometimes it's just after. It depends on the protocol. There's a, a bunch of different um, ways that it's done. That's probably beyond the scope of our conversation. <laughs> but um, a lot of people don't want to drink a large amount of sugar, especially if they're not used to drinking or eating a lot of sugar. It seems kind of cruel. And then there's also additives and things in it that people might, might not be comfortable drinking, like food dyes and mm-hmm. um, preservatives and, and other things. Um, so I totally get that. The The challenge is that the gold standard and how it's been diagnosed and most of the research on how it's diagnosed has used a glucose tolerance test. So that is that is the standard. That's what's been most tested and most validated, but it still kind of sucks <laughs> to have to do Yeah, it. I remember I um, did it. I watched my friends and students do it. it ugh, I remember bringing um, like almonds or something for right after I took my blood because all that sugar, it just really affected me. And I know that's why yeah. a lot of people don't want to do it. Is there any other way? <laughs> yeah, there there are other ways. So um, and I don't want to entirely throw the glucose tolerance <laughs> test under the bus. Like it, it is an option. And some people like having like, you know, here's the numbers, here's where you are. Like you do worry about this or you don't worry about this. It's like pretty black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, granted there are some issues with false positives and false negatives. So there's always that trade off. Um, but yeah, there are different alternatives. So one is, um, a first trimester screening with a test called hemoglobin A1C, which measures your average blood sugar over the past couple months. And so A1C in the first trimester is essentially a reflection of what your pre-pregnancy blood sugar was doing. And this can rule in or out like type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes or normal blood sugar metabolism. And that is helpful because if your blood sugar is in the pre-diabetic range, there's a very, very good chance that you'll go on to fail a glucose tolerance test later in your pregnancy. It's like 98.4% predictive if it's high Mm -hmm. that you will also fail a glucose tolerance test. So the idea is that if we can identify really early, A, some people don't have to drink the nasty glucola (laughs) drink, but B, you also have like two thirds of your pregnancy to do something about it. Um, So that's something that I recommend people add to their first trimester labs. The challenge with A1C is that it becomes unreliable in later pregnancy. So it's not something you can do at 24 to 28 weeks to diagnose. Your blood becomes more dilute and your red blood cells turn over quicker later in pregnancy. So you get a falsely low reading. So it's kind of useless later in pregnancy, but Mm -hmm. for early pregnancy, um, it can be, it can be helpful, um, to identify high blood sugar. There's also, uh, an option of testing your blood sugar at home, um, so it's called home glucose monitoring. You get a blood sugar monitor and test strips and you check your blood sugar first thing in the morning and after each meal for a period of one to two weeks. I usually recommend two weeks and you compare that to the gestational diabetes goals and also normal blood sugar, um, levels that are observed in women without GD. So that can be helpful for people who just want to monitor at home, essentially like if you were to fail a glucose tolerance test, you'd be doing the same thing anyways. Mm-hmm. How a provider feels about doing home blood sugar monitoring or not is a different story. Like some don't want to accept it as an alternative to the glucola. So that's a debate you may want to have. 
Some may want to have you test the rest of your pregnancy because if you don't take a glucola, they're going to assume that you, they're going to treat you as if you have GD. I've heard of some practices doing this, so it might be something you're, well, then you're really you're dealing for the long haul. Yeah. And that could affect um, how the whole way someone's going to birth. They may be like, okay, we're not going to let you get past your due date. So that could really have a, a snowball effect. Right. It's kind of really obnoxious. What's funny about the home blood sugar monitoring is that it's a, it's a recognized alternative for people who literally like physically can't take the glucola. So in the case of somebody who's had bariatric surgery, they, their, their gastrointestinal tract has been rerouted or changed somehow surgically and they can't, they don't have a normal response to a glucose tolerance test. So for those people, they do home blood sugar monitoring and it's no big deal. But for everyone else, sometimes they get freaked out. But that's something to discuss with your provider. Um, there are other people who try to do um, uh, like stand-ins for the glucola. So instead of doing a glucose drink, you take you have a test meal with a certain amount of carbs or you have juice or you have um, the jelly bean test or some kind of candy that they say is equivalent to what's in the glucola. And those ones in the literature just don't stand up as being reliable. Essentially Mm -hmm. the point of the glucola is that you're doing a standardized test. And so if you do like juice, for example, on the glucola, it's pure glucose. Right. So you have a sense of like how much sugar, so they can really judge against that. Well, for it, and, it, and it's specifically glucose because right. there's a different glycemic response to different types of sugar. So you right. have like grape juice, which can be a significant amount of fructose and there's going to be glucose in there as well. And probably some other sugars, like the glycemic response may be totally different. And we're tr- like, I'd rather people just test their blood sugar at home instead of doing a random one-time test meal or one-time drinking juice. Like monitor your blood sugar at home for a couple weeks, have a couple meals that are higher carb or where you include juice and observe your glycemic response. But you're getting like a lot more data than just this single one-time test with something that isn't standardized. If someone's kind of on the fence, they're like, oh, I don't know if I should do this. Can you talk about how GD affects the pregnant person and baby. Cause that might also help them see what, if they do or don't want to do it, if they can actually see like, Oh, this, my body really needs some support or I don't really, my body doesn't. So can you talk about how GD affects the pregnant person and baby? Yeah, this is, this is an excellent question. Cause this is the whole reason we're talking about it. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> high, high blood sugar can affect the, I'll talk about the baby first. It can affect the baby specifically in a number of ways. Um, one, if it's happening, especially early in pregnancy, elevated blood sugar, really mildly elevated blood sugar, even below the diagnostic criteria for gestational diabetes increases the risk of neural tube defects and congenital heart defects. So like your body is trying really, 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 really hard to keep your blood sugar at that nice 20% lower than usual range during pregnancy on purpose (laughs) because it's very important to development. If you get to exceedingly high levels of blood sugar, like you might have in undiagnosed or poorly managed type 2 or type 1 diabetes, you actually have a higher risk of really serious um, malformations and, and also stillbirth. Those are usually reserved for like blood sugars beyond the, the 200 mark range, but a, it can have a drastic effect on development in that way. 
Another way is a little more subtle in that having slightly higher levels of blood sugar over the course of a whole pregnancy um, is essentially providing higher amounts of fuel for the baby. And so they tend to grow larger than normal and have a higher percent body fat than normal, which most of the time people are thinking, oh, that's just going to affect delivery, right? Oh, maybe you'll have a little bit bigger baby and it might be a more challenging birth and there may be a risk of shoulder dystocia, or you may be pushed towards cesarean. Um, those things all, all matter and are legitimate. Um, my bigger concern is that that subtle higher levels of blood sugar over that whole pregnancy can affect the baby's pancreatic development and also their later risk for type 2 diabetes and obesity, and also their risk for hypoglycemia at birth. So we can think of it in this way. When the blood sugar levels are consistently higher, so maternal blood sugar passes to the baby. Maternal insulin does not. So when a baby is exposed to high blood sugar levels, the baby starts releasing extra insulin. Their pancreas grows larger than normal and is used to secreting large amounts of insulin. And the way it disposes of extra glucose often results in higher fat accumulation. Um, but also when they are born and you cut that umbilical cord, you cut that that like streamline of, you know, sugar going straight to the baby, then the baby's insulin production is primed for a high sugar supply. And mm -hmm. when you cut that and that disappears, the insulin's still being pumped out, but the sugar supply is stopped. And that's why sometimes these babies can go hypoglycemic. So, so it's really sad. That I mean, baby could have a lifelong or, you know, baby then to child into, into adulthood could have lifelong health ramifications from this. Yes. So there's a lot of data. They call it epigenetics. So how the environment we're exposed to can impact us, impact the expression of our genes. And specifically when it comes to pregnancy, they call it fetal programming or intrauterine programming. And we have a lot of data now showing us that there is a difference in the pancreatic development, a difference in the secretion to insulin and the response to insulin, and a difference in their lifelong risk for metabolic problems like obesity and type 2 diabetes. That's what, and not to like not worry about the mom because that matters too, but that's, that's what I'm most worried about is that this can have an effect generationally and it seems to persist generation after generation after generation as well. So that's something I think we really need to think about. I mean, 50% of Americans right now have some sort of blood sugar issue, whether it's diagnosed or undiagnosed diabetes. Wow. That's 50%? Insanely high. 50, 50%. The that's like jaw dropping the, high. That's, yeah. I mean, that's when we have to step back. I mean, this, we can go down a deep rabbit hole, this, but we have to step back and be like, what as a society are we doing is, to our nutrition? Yeah, what is happening? Actually, and I'm that just, is, that, that's from like the journal of the American Medical Association, like 2015 statistics. Holy crazy. And 40, I have to admit. 49 to 52% is the exact statistic. I'll try so. not to go too down the rabbit hole, but it's interesting. So I have little, little people, my little kids, and I'm noticing as I was looking up on buying some clothes in the past, in this, again, my son's only seven, my daughter's four, but you know, I was buying clothes and all of a sudden they have like slim, normal and husky. I'm like, why should a seven-year-old be husky? You know what I mean? Like, oh, funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like this is crazy that this has become kind of a norm, you know, for, it is, it is crazy. Know that's, that's not the topic, but it's like, it just is shocking that we're almost accepting it instead of, you know, be like, let's provide clothes. And of course everyone needs clothes, but 
instead of stepping back and be like, what are we doing and how can we actually improve? Yeah. Yeah. And I really have to wonder, I mean, that's why that original statistic I threw out about the sixfold higher risk of type two diabetes by 13 years old, that that's something that really made me go like, whoa, you know, we've been looking at this childhood obesity thing completely backwards, just essentially blaming the kids for not being active enough or blaming the parents for not feeding them healthy enough foods. But it's like, what if they've literally been programmed yeah, from, to from, be at a higher risk for these issues? From from, internal from, growth. That's crazy. From yeah. From growth. And right, like so let, between just to throw another stat out, that's crazy. Between <laughs> 2001 and 2009, there was a more than 30% increase in the prevalence of type two diabetes among children. Oh, it's like, that's so it's like good. absolutely an epidemic. So when I'm worried about maternal blood sugar levels, it's like, I'm thinking about this kid like 10 and 20 years from now. That's honestly my concern. There are, of course, like, you know, having higher blood sugar during pregnancy can also predispose a mother to other related complications like high blood pressure and cholestasis and higher risk of birth injury and higher chances of having a cesarean. Of course, it sort of opens a whole nother can of worms, but... I think it's unfair because gestational diabetes is something that's definitely on a spectrum, but a lot of providers see gestational diabetes as this like, oh, this is terrible emergency and your your choice of providers, your choice of place to birth or how to birth or when to birth are affected. And that also really bothers me because yeah, I don't think it's a very slippery slope. Fair. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, you, you did kind of touch on how this affects the pregnant person. Let's talk a little bit about what would happen if someone said, all right, I don't want to take the test and, and they have a right, you know, to, to deny things. What happens if they do have high blood sugar and it goes uncontrolled? Well, essentially it's all the same risks that we've been talking about. So okay. Probably the biggest one is that it can predispose you to other things. So like blood pressure and blood sugar tend to go hand in hand. So you have high blood sugar and there's a higher risk that your blood pressure will also go up. So it predisposes you to preeclampsia, which can definitely affect your your pregnancy health. Yes. Um, Definitely that it can contribute to the baby's development in both growing too large and then body composition, having an unhealthily high percent body fat and then the carryover stuff on the on the later risk of of issues later in life related to blood sugar and and weight and all that um which is a big reason why like if you're not gonna take the test and like that is totally an absolutely legitimate um decision that you can make that is that I, i don't look down upon in any way but if you're gonna go that option then just you should monitor Yeah. Yeah, Just like just double check and see what's going on and maybe double check, you know, if it seems fine for a week, then check again in a month or two months or so and see what's happening. I mean, that's, that's one of the issues with the glucose tolerance test even is that it's like a one-time measurement between 24 to 28 weeks. Well, some people's insulin resistance doesn't spike until week 30 or 32 or 34. Mm -hmm. And so we could be missing high blood sugar that's developing later on because we have a one-time test, right? So it's like you can you can point out flaws in any of the methods, really. Yeah. So if someone chooses not to take the test, they should at least can, they should monitor. They shouldn't be like, I for, I'm not taking it. I'm just going to keep going. But they should be responsible and keep monitoring. 
I would recommend it. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, cause I, I've, I've scoured your website. I've, I've been a little bit of a stalker that way. I've subscribed to all your stuff. So I have, <laughs> I have some sense of the answer for this. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how GD can be managed by food and exercise. Yeah. So as we kind of talked about gestational diabetes is carbohydrate intolerance. So the, thing that I recommend people first do is get an understanding of which foods raise your blood sugar and which foods don't raise your blood sugar. And part of that is like just nutritional facts of life. Foods that are higher in carbohydrates raise your blood sugar more because carbohydrates are made of individual chain links of sugar all linked together. So high carbohydrate foods are going to raise your blood sugar more and faster and more significantly than foods that are not high in carbohydrates. That's kind of a fact of life. Um, Specific responses to foods and in different quantities and in different combinations will vary woman to woman, which is why eating to your meter or monitoring your blood sugar after you eat and observing the patterns is like paramount. You kind of can't avoid that, but you can kind of guess if you get an idea of which foods are higher in carbs or not, like, okay, if I'm going to eat a lot of this high carb food, I'm going to have high blood sugar after. Whereas if you have a meal that's mostly fat and protein and vegetables, like a grass fed beef burger on a salad, then you're probably not going to have blood sugar that's as high if that meal was on a bun or served with fries. Mm -hmm. Right. So I like to break it down really simple and teach people like the high carb foods and then the non high carb foods, you're like fats and proteins and non starchy vegetables. And that makes it pretty simple. Um, beyond that, finding the amount of carbohydrates you can tolerate and which ones you tolerate is a matter of checking your blood sugar after eating. And you may find that combining certain foods together may help with your blood sugar control as well. So Um, say you're having that burger, grass-fed burger on a salad, maybe you can get away with having some fruit or having some like sweet potato fries or having one bun or something like that with the meal. And because the carbohydrates have been combined with the fat and protein that's in the burger, it kind of blunts your blood sugar response. Your blood sugar doesn't go up as quickly or as high because the digestion and breakdown and absorption of it has been slowed down by being in the presence of fat and protein um, as you're eating it. So sometimes it's a, you know, a food combining thing. Um, the other general, general rule, I hate using the word rule because I don't think there are any like super strict rules, but in general, most people notice their blood sugar is better when they're spreading out their food over the course of the day and just in pregnancy in general, especially later on, it's like hard to eat large portions all at once because your your belly gets so full. Yeah. Yeah. That causes indigestion. Baby's kind of pushing up on your stomach. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, in general for pregnancy, but even for blood sugar management, it can be helpful to split your, your food up into meals and snacks rather than eating like a giant amount at one time and then taking a really long break without food and then having a giant amount at another time, just kind of spread it out throughout the day. So you're eating every couple hours. Um, and then you're monitoring your blood sugar after every meal and observing what the patterns are. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What about how strict does someone have to be with their recording what they eat? If they're generally, if they've kind of managed their blood sugar, can they, do you recommend they write everything down and and record it or they kind of get into a groove? What's your thought on that, on being really mindful of what's being uh, taken in? I think like within the first week, you'll probably observe if your blood sugar numbers are above range after meals, which is typically defined as over 120. Um, That's about 20 points lower than the non-pregnancy type 2 diabetes goals, by the way. So you have to make sure you're using the right goals. But typically, uh, less than 120 is recommended for after meals. So if you're trending higher than that and you haven't been watching your portions of things, you might want to start writing down what you're eating and writing down the portions, especially of the higher carbohydrate foods, so you can get an idea of how much you can get away with without having high blood sugar. Uh Uh-huh. If your blood sugar seems to be like relatively well managed and you're regularly staying below 120, you can kind of eyeball it. Like, I don't think, especially when you err on the lower carb side of things, you don't have to be as strict about measuring out every morsel of food or tracking everything perfectly. But if your blood sugar is high, then Then you you probably want to go back tracking kind of more. Explore. Yeah, yeah, kind of explore what's what's going on. So it depends on the person. Some people don't need to be writing down every single thing if they have a general idea of it and they're not regularly going above range. Is there any particular food that you're like, all right, people, this is just a bad idea. And I know you say don't like rules, but is there anything like that bowl of pasta, just walk by, don't go there? Or is there, you know what I mean? Yeah. So the tricky thing, and this is where understanding which foods are higher carb or not, and getting a general sense of carbohydrate counting can be helpful. Uh So if you see a giant plate of pasta, I'll use that as an example. If you follow like the actual like diabetic portion sizes for foods, they like to give you all the carbohydrate foods and then they tell you how much equates to a portion and each portion is equal to 15 grams of carbohydrates. If you look at the portion of cooked pasta that's equal to 15 grams of carbohydrates. It's like a third of a cup. It is nothing. It's like a, it's like half a scoop. That's so, that sounds so unsatisfying. It does not <laughs> fill the plate. So just from a portion stance, like pasta portions tend to be way bigger than we can tolerate. It's just way more carbohydrates than you'd expect. So Pasta, yeah, probably is something I wouldn't recommend. Maybe do zucchini noodles instead, and then you're getting like... Which are delicious, but I have to say, I made... Which can be delicious, I made homemade meatballs and spaghetti, or turkey meatballs and spaghetti last night, and it was quite satisfying, and I don't know if I would have been quite as satisfied if they were zucchini noodles, but I guess, you know, (laughs) I guess we have to make sacrifices. And depending on the carbohydrate tolerance, they may be able to get away with doing like half regular spaghetti mixed with half zucchini noodles. Oh, that's a good idea. You know, there's different ways to do it. I mean, we just did a a bolognese sauce recently, and 
Um, I served it. I just naturally feel better eating lower carbs. That's just kind of how I eat. This is totally true. I mean, um, you're absolutely right. Did I feel as good an hour later? No. But so that's actually a fantastic tip. Oh, I like that. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that and see if my kids notice. The other day is I just did, um, broccoli. I did like pan seared broccoli in like some, I think just butter and salt and yummy make it kind of get it brown put a little water in stick the lid on it sort of steams in the pan but you have some caramelization so it tastes good so I had that as a bed underneath the bolognese sauce and it was really really good so sometimes it's a matter of just you can get creative I had to I actually um did cauliflower rice and my kids didn't notice a difference and the whole time (laughs) I wanted to tell them because it was so exciting for me but I knew if I did they'd be like oh this is horrible (laughs) My husband and I are constantly like winking each other at the table when, when our son's eating something that he like doesn't know that he's like eating a vegetable or like, you know, we're like, oh good, he's eating it. Yeah, I know. We have to keep, like we have cauliflower crust. So, ooh, so listeners, these are some really good tips. (laughs) All right, let me pull this back. Answer your original questions because I kind of didn't answer. Um, Two things I'd say I, I usually recommend people avoid as much as possible is anything that says it's instant. So like instant rice, instant mashed potatoes, instant noodles, like ramen, um, instant oatmeal. Those things have been processed in a way to make them cook really, really rapidly. Uh And that also increases how quickly they're broken down in your system into sugar. So like eating instant rice is probably the same or worse than eating pure sugar for your blood sugar response. Oh my goodness. So those, and they have no nutrients in it. They're just pure starch, pure carbohydrates. There's no vitamins or minerals or antioxidants. Like they're kind of worthless. Get don't just don't do those. And you said ramen, <laughs> the, the food of my college days. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's okay. I'll let that go. <laughs> and you know, they're also just like cheap and fast and easy. No, and they're and, in salt chemicals. You can tell. Yeah. We just have to get creative about finding something else. That's also like not too expensive and easy to make like a frozen bag of cauliflower rice or yeah. something. <laughs> so that yeah. We always go to those foods. Um, and Trader and then of Joe's course, has a lot of those. Yeah. Trader Joe's is a really good option if people have it in their, in their area. They have like organic frozen cauliflower mm-hmm. rice. They have a whole bunch of things that are helpful. So I, I totally digress, but it's kind of fun to go down that path. But so I want to talk about some of the, and I think this ties into what we're talking about. What are some uncommon, some common mistakes people make when trying to manage GD? I think one of the biggest ones is that there's going to be a one size fits all. So maybe you're given a meal plan, especially if you like go to a a conventionally minded gestational diabetes class with like a dietitian or diabetes educator and they're not, and they don't take a lower carb real food approach, then you're going to get a meal plan that is pretty high carb. It will be no less than 175 grams of carbs per day. I have one client who sent me her uh, meal plan from the GD class she went to, and it had 227 grams of carbs. So um, each meal had 45 to 60 grams of carbs, which if you think about it logically makes no sense. If you failed a glucose tolerance test that has, say, 50 grams of carbohydrates, why would we then give you a meal plan that has 50 grams of carbohydrates and expect you to have normal sugar. It's mind boggling, but nonetheless, um, 
so a be you know careful about the information that you're taking in and the uh, the credibility of it but b understand that there there isn't a one size fits all there may well be somebody who can manage their blood sugar on 227 grams of carbs per day and it's a matter of really carefully measuring their portion sizes of carbohydrates to keep it right to the meal plan and that might work for them and there may be another person who needs like 120 grams of carbs per day and there may be somebody else who needs less and it's very individualized and you have a lot of wiggle room for playing around with what you're eating and in what combinations and what amounts to sort of get to those target blood sugar levels Mm -hmm. so a look at look at that understand that it's nuanced understand that it's gonna take a couple weeks for you to find your sweet spot and hopefully your clinician is open to giving you a couple of weeks to kind of play around with the food part um, before automatically recommending medication. Yeah. Granted, there may be some cases where blood sugar is high enough that that is warranted to go on medication right away. But I'd say the majority of the time, you you do have a lot of wiggle room to play around, um, particularly with your mealtime blood sugar numbers. Uh, I think another thing to consider is that a lot of the information on gestational diabetes, I think, is very doom and gloom. It's often looking at worst case scenario and these are all the risks. And I think it just scares women. And I think it's counterproductive. I mean, I think it's important to take it seriously. Obviously, we've talked about some of the risks of of like unmanaged blood sugar, but when it's well managed, your risks of these complications go way down. Like if mm-hmm. you can maintain your blood sugar in the normal range, there's no reason you're at risk for higher for complications that are typically associated with gestational diabetes. So I think even even like mindset wise, like looking at looking at it from like a bigger picture standpoint and less doom and gloom and more this is manageable um, can be helpful. Yeah, no, these are all important because I think people might just take the one size fits all and and really not explore. So these are really important things for people to consider. Um, One question, I have a friend that has gestational diabetes and she wants to have another pregnancy. What are the chances she had it once she'll have it again? So it varies based on the study you read, but it's assumed that there's about a 50% chance of having GP again. That's pretty high. So you have to think of pregnancy like a stress test on your body. Your body goes through crazy physiological adaptations to grow your baby. And and part of that is a natural surge in insulin resistance in late pregnancy. I mean, it's built in from like, uh, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human beings being exposed to like famine and limited foods. The body wants to shunt as many nutrients to the baby as possible to carry that baby to term, you know, no questions asked. And we're suddenly in this food environment that's very unusual with a lot of easy to digest processed carbohydrates available. And it just puts us over the edge, not to mention whatever happened with our mom or grandmother and like this whole rates of insulin resistance and prediabetes and diabetes going on. It's kind of a, it's a mismatch for pregnancy really. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is pretty likely, but I will say there, all the steps that you take to manage your blood sugar 
during pregnancy or prevent developing type 2 diabetes later preg- in pregnancy, uh, in later pregnancies, I should say, um, such as like eating a really nutrient-dense diet, avoiding processed refined carbohydrates, finding like the right amount of carbohydrates for your body, which generally tends to err on the lower carb side of things, but it may be different person to person. Being active, um, if you've just had a baby, breastfeeding, even breastfeeding for like three months only has been shown to lower the risk of developing type 2 diabetes by 50% um, later in life. So that would have a carryover beneficial effect on your blood sugar metabolism, whether you get pregnant again or not, right? Um, Optimizing your vitamin D levels, since that uh, helps with your blood sugar control, managing your stress levels. That affects your like adrenal hormone, like your stress hormone production, which affect your blood sugar levels. Like there's lots of little things that could be incorporated sort of on a, on a holistic sense with reducing that risk. Um, but I'd say for, for people who have had gestational diabetes before, it might be even more important for you to check what your blood sugar is doing either pre-pregnancy or in your first trimester Maybe if you still have your glucometer, get some new test strips. Usually they've expired by the time that you're <laughs> on your next kid, by the way. So get new test strips so it's accurate. Um, or get an, get an A1C, run at your doctor's office. Like just see, see where your blood sugar is at and just keep an eye on it. Um, some people are able to avoid it and some people aren't. Um, I can tell you that I've had some who don't find my work until they're on their like fourth or fifth pregnancy and they've had gestational diabetes a number of times and they're always managed with medication and then they find my approach and they go through their whole pregnancy diet controlled. Like there are definitely um, exceptions to the statistics, but in generally the statistics say you're at a pretty high chance to have gestational diabetes and to have it be a little more challenging to manage the second time around. But it really all depends on how it was managed and what you did between your pregnancies mm-hmm. um, as to your risk. That's really smart though. Think about what you're doing. If, especially if you want to have another baby, what are you doing between your pregnancies? You know, so keeping your body healthy, that's, I yep. think a really good, do you have any final tips or anything you want to add that I didn't ask that you think people need to know? Oh gosh. I feel like we've gone over. I know. I really kind of I feel like we've through. gone over everything. <laughs> that was very thorough. Oh, thank you. I do my research. I also find the topic really interesting um, because it's something I didn't know much about. And I've had people ask me, so I thought I'm like, why not? Let's just dig in. Cause you're those that don't know, well, I'll have you talk about where people can find your work, but it's really, your website's great. Everything you offer is so great. So I got really excited um, researching all this. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be on and, and talk about this and share a different approach. Well, let's talk about where can people find your work? So you can find me at my main website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. Um, if you're interested specifically in gestational diabetes, you may want to go to that website, which is realfoodforgd.com. And on there, I have a free video series on managing gestational diabetes that gives you sort of an intro to what to do when you've been diagnosed and how to manage it. I also have a book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And then for those who want additional support, I have an online course. 
which includes, it's all web-based, um, and it includes trainings on pretty much everything we've talked about, but in a lot more detail. Um, and it also has a private Facebook group that goes with it where I have office hours every week and answer questions. And it's a really, really supportive community. It's I've been running it for three years now. So we've had, oh yeah, well over a hundred women go through it. And it's really cool. We have yet to have a mother have a large baby. We have <gasps> That's very low fantastic. rates. Yeah, this is totally like contrary to all the statistics, by the way. We have a lot of women who maybe have been like fighting to have a home birth. And in some states, you're not able to have a home birth if you go on medication. So there's a lot of discussions around managing your blood sugar, especially managing your fasting blood sugar with lifestyle stuff. And I can't give any guarantees, but there's not much research on this. So that a lot of this just comes from my clinical experience working with working with clients and then what people are sharing in the course. So that's pretty cool as well. Um, and then my most, most recent book is Real Food for Pregnancy, which is on prenatal nutrition as a whole. So not just specific to gestational diabetes. Um, but the part in that book that I think is relevant to our discussion today, if people want to go through the pros and cons of all the different diagnostic um, tests for gestational diabetes and all those options, it goes through those in, in all the detail and everything cited to the medical journals that I source from. So it's a good thing to bring into your provider if you're arguing for one way or, or another. This is all great information. So I, I'll make sure everything is in the show notes. People can link to you. Um, as I mentioned, yeah, I was digging around. You've got really good stuff. And I'm just so impressed that no one's had, a, you know, a baby that's considered big. That's just, that's a huge thing to brag about. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. It's, it is contrary to the statistics, but it's all about, and it's hopeful. And it makes it, it yeah. makes it hopeful. Well, thank it's you so thank you so much for your time and all your incredible information. It's really just I think it it's going to help shed a light. So if someone does find out they have GD, they don't have to feel like oh now look at all that's ahead. Like they, there is management. Right. Well, thank there you. There is management, and there is a silver lining to it as well because there's a lot of. Well, I'll just say this before we sign off. Yeah. There's a lot of people who say they have a better experience of their pregnancy overall as a result of all the things they do to keep their blood sugar well controlled. Like I'm not puffy. I didn't gain 60 pounds. I gained 22. Like yeah. I had better birth. I did, you know, all of these things are actually uh, like a side effect, a carryover effect from the lifestyle stuff. So sometimes there is a silver lining to the annoyance and <laughs> the fear mongering and all the stuff that goes along with the diagnosis. So just, just, Stay Yay. hopeful. Positive. I like the positive ending. <laughs> well, Always. thank you for your time. Take You're care. You're so welcome. Glad to be here. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.